Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 94, The Reign of Isabella and Mortimer. Last time we finally got to the fall of Edward and his evil henchmen, the Dispensers. Isabella and Mortimer had a most satisfactory Christmas. It really couldn't have gone any better. On the other hand, it's entirely possible that Mortimer had something of an ear-bashing from his wife, Joan. Joan was a Lusignan, and surely had done her duty. Twelve children, keeping the home fires burning while Roger was hanging around in the tower and wandering around the continent... And what did she get for her pains? Her husband appears back in the country with some fancy woman in tow. They probably did meet in November, and who knows what was discussed, but I suspect, on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, that Joan was probably pretty resigned to the whole thing. She outlived her husband, and was pretty keen to get his bones back for the family mantelpiece, so presumably she wasn't too bitter and we should think a bit about the relationship between Isabella and Mortimer. The chroniclers in those early days always put Isabella to the fore, and not surprisingly. After all, she was the mother of the prince in whose name they were supposed to be ruling, and they were both understandably keen not to shove people's noses in the fact that they were both involved in an adulterous relationship, which by and large, as far as the Queen was concerned at least, wasn't smiled on but there can be little doubt that Mortimer was a very active part of this two-person team. It must have been his experience that had led the invasion, and there's equally little doubt that while he kept his name out of things like the trial of the dispensers, for example, he was very much the eminence gris behind Isabella and Edward. Whatever you think of the level of romance involved, 
There's no doubt that Mortimer was as hard as nails and hungry for power. But he faced competition, especially in that early period, from Henry of Lancaster. Henry of Lancaster saw himself as the obvious man to run things with the Queen until Edward achieved his majority. After all, he was of royal descent, he was in his mid-forties by this stage, he was massively rich and powerful, and the flame of anger at the death of Brother Thomas still burned brightly. Since he was Earl of Leicester, as well as Earl of Lancaster, Henry had managed to get Edward held at his castle at Kenilworth. I wonder at what point Henry realised that the idea of him taking over the leadership was actually far from being a gimme. At some point he'd have realised, pretty quickly I'd figure, that Mortimer had ambitions of his own, and those tensions would appear pretty quickly. Anyway, the big question now was what to do with the king. Isabella held a conflab at Wallingford, and I'd better have a quick run through some of the major players. I'll only do a few, since no one ever remembers a long list. So, obviously, you're aware of Isabella and Mortimer, and we've introduced you to Henry of Lancaster. The other two guys you need to bear in mind are the Earls of Kent and Norfolk. Both these Earls are part of the royal family. They're Edward I's sons by his second marriage to Margaret of France, and so they're half-brothers to Edward II. They're in their late twenties at this stage. So the council that assembled at Wallingford had three choices. Reinstatement, now that the dispensers have been removed, deposition, or execution. But there was only one real choice. No one could bear the thought of starting all over again and suffering another set of favourites. But equally, publicly at least, no one had the stomach for execution. So, deposition it was then. But it had to be done with the common assent of the realm. And so the scene was set for Parliament at Westminster Hall, The situation was quite remarkable. No king of England had ever been deposed, and there was precious little precedence elsewhere. We're in new territory. And meanwhile, the atmosphere in London was electric. London had, as ever, played a crucial role in Edward's fall, and they were determined to get back some of the privileges they thought had been taken away from them by Edward. And so they wanted rid of him now. So all the debates took place against the backdrop of the noise of the London mob. Edward, still at Kenilworth, steadfastly refused to be there. Maybe he thought that by not taking part, the Parliament wouldn't be legitimate. Maybe he was looking for an evening in that night with pizza and a film. But whatever the reason, it's very likely that Mortimer breathed a heavy sigh of relief. And at Westminster Hall, Mortimer was in his element. On the 12th of January, he spoke to Parliament, telling them that he spoke not for himself, but only as a mouthpiece of the magnates when he said that Edward was inadequate and should be replaced by his son Edward, the Duke of Aquitaine. They had a plant in the audience. Thomas Wake, Lancaster's son-in-law, raised his hands and shouted that Edward had to be removed. Then they wheeled in the Bishop of Hereford, who went for Edward's jugular and did a real hatchet job on the guy. And the Archbishop of Canterbury had a little go as well, rather interestingly declaiming that the will of the people was the will of God. Wake rose up again. Is it the will of the people? Is it the people's will that the king should be deposed and his son be made king in his place? He shouted. A cry came back from the crowd. Let it be done. Let it be done. The Archbishop of Canterbury stepped forward. 
Your voice has clearly been heard here, for Edward has been deprived of government of the kingdom, and his son made king as you have unanimously consented. And so it was done. Prince Edward came into the hall. Everyone started singing Glory, Lord and Honour. But actually it wasn't all quite as sorted as you might think. Several bishops weren't singing. Edward himself was clearly not completely swept away. He wanted the throne if his father gave it to him, and he was deeply unhappy at the idea of deposition. But Mortimer drove it all on. On the 20th of January, at Kenilworth Castle, a delegation arrived. A small group, including Henry of Lancaster, met with Edward in private and told him they'd like him to abdicate in favour of his son, and if he didn't do that, they'd withdraw their fealty. Edward took it like a man with flu, so he burst into tears, and there was much sighing and lamenting, but eventually he gave way. And then, dressed in black, he was led into the hall. He was faced by a solemn group of 24 men, representing all the various groups in Parliament. No one was telling any jokes. Edward took it as you might expect. He blubbed, and he had to be helped in by the Earl of Leicester and the Bishop of Winchester. He sobbed that he was deeply saddened that his people were so cross with him, and so on and so forth. The following day, homage was formally withdrawn by the group, and Edward was once again Edward of Carnarvon. The point about all of this, apart from the theatre and Edward's less-than-manly performance, was that in the end Parliament did not actually depose a king. The king abdicated. On the 1st of February 1327, Edward III was crowned. And let me tell you, we're going to have fun with Edward. Cressy, Poitiers, the Black Prince, the Garter, Alice Perez, the Black Death, I mean really. Anyway, Edward was knighted by John of Hainault, and then the coronation ceremony passed off in a blizzard of gold cloth. He also used the form of words his father had used, to hold and keep the rightful laws and customs that the community of the realm shall choose. Because at this point Edward has no personal will, he's subject to the will of others in a way that he won't be again until Alice Perez and his dotage. Edward III was not a wuss. So this, even at the age of 14, would have hurt him badly. So, happy times. Payday was in. London had its privileges confirmed. Thomas of Lancaster's conviction for treason was reversed, and so on. Now, you might expect that Mortimer and Isabella would immediately plunge their snouts into the trough. And you'd be absolutely right. And so they did. It's worth noting that while Mortimer will make up later for lost time, to begin with, he got himself allocated lands to the tune of £1,000 of income, which is nice, but could be worse, and really was pretty restrained. Worth noting that at the coronation he'd had his sons dressed as earls, which was more than a little cheeky, but for the moment he was hanging back a bit until he had the grasp of the political situation. But Isabella, well, Isabella did not hold back. She got herself an award of 20,000 marks a year, which is absolutely stonking megabucks. By and large, so far Isabella is coming out of this less like the she-wolf of France thing. She had to suffer the insufferable. She frequently seemed to intervene in a soft-hearted way, such as with the elder dispenser. But there's little doubt that she had a full appreciation of her dignity and expected to have the means to live in a way that she expected to become accustomed to. One more little wrinkle on the main events. On the 3rd of April, 
Mortimer managed to get Edward moved from Kenilworth to Barclay Castle, and so out of Lancaster's control and into his own. Lancaster would later accuse Mortimer of taking the king by force, and this could well be true. Now that they're dealt with the internal problems, Isabella and Roger face some external ones, principally the pesky Scots. Bruce was chasing his dream, the recognition of Scottish independence. He was done with talking, now it was offensive, a grand strategy to attack through Ireland, Wales and of course the north of England. As it happens, the first two crashed and burned, partly because of some judicious personnel policies by Mortimer, firing the dispenser Justicia of Ireland and replacing him with his own man. But the attack from Scotland needed to be defended, and so the feudal host was assembled at York. It's difficult to know what was the worst crime that Mortimer committed in the eyes of Edward III, but the Scottish campaign of 1327 would have been darn close to qualifying. The English were outgeneraled and outfought, though having said that, the Scots didn't make any headway either. But the point is that the war is now being carried out on English soil. We've come a long way since Edward I's campaigns. The other thing that Edward III, as we'll see, is built for is war, glory, honour and chivalry. All the dreams and values we're no longer allowed to indulge in, for very good reasons no doubt, were Edward's meat and drink. And so the campaign came as a terrible disappointment. I'm not going to go into vast detail, but the Black Douglas and his Scots first of all sold the English a dummy that allowed them to raid and burn deep into England. Then they took up a defensive position on a hill and Mortimer refused to allow the English to attack. You suspect he was right, but Edward's career will show what could be achieved with mindless courage and chutzpah. So all his instincts cried out to attack and have done. Mortimer refused to allow him, and in so doing made an enemy. Edward's powerlessness was made clear, Mortimer's power was revealed, and the humiliation of English arms burned in young Edward's heart. I remember taking my hound for a walk once, and meeting a greyhound. My dog is a rather lolloping English setter, bags of stamina and enthusiasm, the brain of a small shriveled nut. Anyway, my dog tried to play with said greyhound, who danced round him as though he was not there. Couldn't even get close. The Scots travelled light, and they danced round the English, and when the campaign ended in August 1327, everyone knew it had been a fiasco for the English. As they returned south in September 1327, Edward received the news that his father was dead. He had apparently died at Barclay Castle on the 23rd of September. Now then, the death of Edward II. The popular story is that Edward died by having a horn popped into his butt and then a red-hot poker shoved up therein, the aim being that there would be no external marks. There is a world of controversy out there about how he died, and I thought I could have something of a fun extra episode, a sort of murder mystery where we all vote on what really happened. So, for the moment, I'm going to duck all of that and just say that on the 23rd of September, as far as the world was concerned, Edward had croaked. With the death of Edward, Mortimer felt he was off the leash. Roger was an ambitious and determined man, mentally and emotionally well prepared to take the power he craved. He was ept. He'd been born and bred in the violence of the marches, 
cut his teeth in war in Ireland. Roger Mortimer was not necessarily much worse than a whole load of medieval barons. But let's be clear, he lacked any suggestion of Ruth. So while Mortimer had been circumspect in the early days, there would be no suspicion that he was just a good guy out to save the world as an act of altruism from an inept monarch for the greater good. So up to now, he'd had to tread mighty carefully with Henry of Lancaster, but now he intended to break with him and assert himself. There was personal ambition in this. England wasn't big enough for the both of them sort of thing, but there was also policy. A bit like Lenin in 1917, Mortimer wanted peace at any price. He was sick and tired of being humiliated by the Scots with their ponies and their dancing and their pratting about and their oatcakes. As far as Mortimer was concerned, it was time to stop it all. But he knew Lancaster wouldn't agree. Aha, I hear you cry, because Lancaster was a true patriot and never-say-die, spit-in-your-eye warrior. Sorry, no cigar. Lancaster and the barons of the north had been granted the lands of the Scottish rebels. So giving up the war meant giving up the rights to all those lands. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Slowly, these issues would come to the boil and become the way in which Mortimer asserted his power. In between, the new king Edward was married to Philippa of Hainault the cashing of the cheque, if you like, which had been written to Count William of Hainault when he agreed to support the invasion plans. Arranged marriage it might have been, but happy marriage it was also to prove. And now, Prince Edward had a friend and an ally, which, squeezed as he was between Mum Isabella, Mortimer and Lancaster, must have been something of a relief. So now Mortimer began to assert himself. At the Parliament at York in February 1328, the argument about Scotland began. Lancaster and his northern barons were furious, and showed it. Edward was furious, but couldn't show it. And everyone else followed Mortimer, and so the weakness of Lancaster's support was exposed. Over the next six months, Mortimer's followers received a stream of lands and patronage, including the Earl of Kent, interestingly enough, given what goes on later, showing that the old king's half-brother was at this point firmly in the Mortimer camp. By this stage, Mortimer exercised every bit as much power as Isabella. Before long, Mortimer's power in Wales made even dispensers look two-bit and no good, especially with the acquisition of massive estates of his Mortimer cousin, who died in the tower. There was no way of getting around it. Mortimer and Isabella's snouts were deeply embedded in the proverbial trough, There was one other deeply revealing thing that Mortimer did in 1328. He got Edward to make up some earls, including the king's brother, who was in royal tradition made Earl of Cornwall. Modestly, Mortimer suggested that, perhaps possibly, Edward would like to buckle on an earl's belt for him too. And of course, Edward agreed. The title Mortimer chose, though, was the Earl of March. Now, 
you've probably got used to the convention. You know, you usually choose the name of a town to be Earl of. Salisbury, Lincoln, Loughborough, that sort of thing. If you were very grand, daring or royal, you might go for a county. Surrey, Cornwall. Mortimer went further. He went for an entire region, the Marches of Wales. Power was clearly going to his head. Mortimer may have been as greedy for power as Isabella was for money, but it has to be said that they didn't stint on the Parliament and consultation thing. So in April 1328 they called another Parliament, this time at Northampton. Mortimer foresaw trouble. He banned retinues from attending, he banned tournaments, so that the magnates couldn't plot and scheme before the event. But the Lancastrians remained outraged at Scottish peace and what they saw as the loss of their Scottish rights. So once he saw he was never going to agree with them, Mortimer just stopped caring and switched to the the talk-to-the-hand-whatever approach. He told them to shush and that it was the king's will. It was most emphatically not the king's will. The 16-year-old Edward III was once again humiliated, forced into a decision he hated with every fibre of his up and atom, it's only a scratch and keep your hand off my Battenberg cake being... His mother was his mother after all, but Mortimer was really cruising for a bruising. But nonetheless, Prince Edward was forced to ratify the peace treaty with Scotland in May 1328, and so peace broke out. He was not happy, but the only way he could register his anger was his refusal to go to his sister's wedding. Sister Joan was sent to get married to Bruce's son and heir, David, as part of the peace. Hence her name, Joan Makepeace. So, despite his mother's objections, Edward stayed at home. Interestingly, I hear that while being dedicated in church as a young boy, David of Scotland had a few problems with his back end and was therefore called David Drip on the Altar, which is a cumbersome nickname if ever I've heard one. Watching this happen, the Black Douglas prophetically remarked that David would besmirch the whole kingdom. Well, we'll see. There was another significant event before the Parliament, which was the death of the third of three brothers. Now, in principle, of course, there's nothing wrong with getting rid of the odd brother or two, but in this case, it was Charles IV of France. And that meant there were no more direct descendants in the line of Capet. So, another Philip of the House of Valois was selected as king, despite the fact that through Isabella, Edward III also actually had a rather good claim. Now Mortimer did try to use this with Lancaster. Look, he said, rather than try to take lordships in Scotland, which is damp and obsessed with shortbread, I'll give you a bunch of land in Wales. I'll give you a bunch of land in France. Needless to say, the Lancastrians didn't buy it. But of course, this rather dodgy succession will be something we come back to for the next hundred years or so. But the struggle between Lancaster and Mortimer was now on. This is no great struggle of principle, the forces of Lancastrian light against Mortimer darkness. This is simply two blokes slugging it out for control of the underage king. Lancaster sent furious demands for Mortimer to mend his ways. Isabella must give up all her income. Mortimer must leave court and give up the lands he'd taken from others in Wales. And most significantly, he accused Mortimer of treason and murdering the king. Lancaster now had an army around him, and refused point-blank to come to the Parliament. The trouble is that Henry of Lancaster was no more attractive to the world than Thomas of Lancaster had been before him. 
Even Edward, now chafing under Mortimer's control, could see that Lancaster had nothing to offer except a different master. He didn't even have the ordinances to wave around. But his brutality and violence matched Thomas's. So, for example, one of his followers ambushed an enemy called Holland, cut off the head and took it to Lancaster. As far as Mortimer and Lancaster are concerned, if cigarette papers had been invented, you couldn't have put one between the pair of them. Isabella and Mortimer now also had an army around them and demanded that Lancaster back down. And we all seemed set for yet another civil war, for all intents a palace struggle for power. Mortimer and Isabella advanced from the west towards London, where Lancaster stood blocking them, and only at the very last minute did Lancaster march away, so much so that their armies actually skirmished in the suburbs. Lancaster then sat north of London making demands, Mortimer threw them back in his face. Lancaster, be it noted, was not alone. At his side were Edward II's half-brothers, the Earls of Kent and Norfolk. But Mortimer wasn't messing, and so at the end of December 1328 he declared war on Lancaster in the King's name and marched north. Lancaster was at Bedford loaded for bear, but immediately faced exactly the same problems as his brother had faced. He had no great unifying message, and he was fighting the king. Norfolk and Kent were chicken. They didn't mind making a fuss, but they would not fight the king, and so they legged it, slunk back to Edward and begged forgiveness, which was duly granted. As soon as Mortimer and Isabella heard that Norfolk and Kent had deserted, they ordered a night march, with Isabella dressed in shining armour just like the blokes. They arrived at daybreak, Henry of Lancaster came out of his pavilion on the cold January morning without his army. He knelt in the mud and waited. Eventually Mortimer, Edward and Isabella rode up and watched him as he begged for forgiveness. Now for Lancaster I imagine that must have smarted. Just a bit. Mortimer didn't overindulge in revenge. No one lost their heads, though four guys were sentenced to death and fled to France. Instead, Mortimer made his point by fining Lancaster and his cronies and holding the debt over them for good behaviour. Mortimer and Isabella were now at the top of their game and in the short term looking pretty much unassailable. But if you were Mortimer, you'd have to be wondering where this was all leading, wouldn't you? It was okay for Isabella, after all, she was the Queen Mum. But Mortimer... I mean, he really was unpopular with the King. The King is only 16 so it's not going to be long. Rumours began to circulate that Mortimer was out to make himself king. There is also a possibility that Isabella had a child with Mortimer, and if that was true, I would have guessed that Edward was looking under his bed, peeping round corners, and looking down the loo for Spearman before he sat down. In the high summer of 1329, Roger held the grandest of tournaments at his castle at Wigmore in the Welsh Marches. You might like to know that at the time of writing, it's up for sale for 500,000 quid. It's much overgrown and ruined now, but at the time it was a massive and powerful castle. However grand the gates and doors at this castle, though, there was no getting Mortimer's head through them. At the tournament, Roger was crowned as King Arthur, with the Queen sitting beside him. He was publicly taking precedence over Edward and equating himself with the ancient legend, setting himself up as the great hero, the descendant of Arthur. His behaviour elsewhere all gave the same message of overweening arrogance. Here's a quote from the chronicler Geoffrey Le Baker. 
Roger Mortimer shone with all too transient honour, and as Isabella's chief adviser, his word was law. No one dared to address him by name, but only by the title of Earl of March. Indeed, as the Earl went about, he was accompanied by a greater band of courtiers than the King himself. He condescended to rise in the King's presence. When walking with the King, he would arrogantly walk at his side, never giving him precedence, but sometimes, indeed, walking before him. Nuff said. As Mortimer sat there dressed as Arthur, probably the most biting comment came from his own son, Geoffrey, who described him as King of Folly. Still, that's teenagers for you. But all this drama was nothing to the drama that unfolded at the Parliament in March 1330. Roger announced to the Lord in Parliament that the Earl of Kent was arrested. The King's uncle was accused of treason. Gasp, shock, horror. What appears to have happened is that the Earl of Kent had become convinced that the old King was still alive and living in Corfe Castle on the south coast. So, picture the scene, a special court has been set up and Mortimer himself confronted the Earl of Kent in front of the assembled magnates. Mortimer addressed the accused. Sir Edmund, Earl of Kent, you should understand that it behoves us to say, and principally unto our liege lord, Sir Edward, that you are his deadly enemy and his traitor, and also a common enemy unto the realm, and that you have been about many a day to make privily deliverance of Sir Edward, sometime King of England, your brother, who was put down out of his royalty by common assent of all the lords of England and in impairing our lord the king's estate and also his realm. Kent replied, In truth, sir, understand well that I never assented to the impairment of the state of our lord the king nor of his crown, and that I put myself to be tried by my peers. Then Mortimer with a flourish held up a letter. Sir Edmund, know ye not the print of this letter that you took unto Sir John Deverell? Edmund, of course, couldn't deny it, so with a building sense of theatre, Mortimer read it out. It was a letter to Edward of Carnarvon. It included rather more than slightly incriminating statements that the Earl of Kent was planning to free Edward and make him king again. Such as, for example, Your lordship should know that I had the assent of almost all the great lords of England with armour and treasure without number in order to maintain and help your quarrel so you shall be king again. Oops. The will of the court was delivered, death and disinheritance. But the drama wasn't over. Everyone assumed that Kent would appeal to the king, that Edward would make it quite clear what a naughty uncle he was, and he'd be forgiven. Because look, he was of royal blood. You can't go around chopping off the heads of royals. It just isn't cricket. So on the 16th of March, a fuller confession from Kent was read out. Kent threw himself on Edward's mercy thoroughly scared and watery bowled. He offered to walk around London in his shirt barefoot, with a rope round his neck if it would help. Roger intervened. The man should die, he said, and all eyes turned to Edward. Poor Edward. He was in a major jam. He had no desire to kill his unk, but seemed to have no choice. Either he was completely in Mortimer's power because of his youth, or Edward II was genuinely alive, in which case he couldn't fess up to having kept Dad in a cell and pretended that he was dead. And so he sentenced Kent to death. For Edward this was probably the final straw. From now on he was convinced. Mortimer had to go. Three days later Kent was led out of his cell to be beheaded. 
the men appointed to execute him refused to spill royal blood. So some men-at-arms were ordered to kill him, but they said, no, not in my job description, the killing a royal earl, sir, more than my job's worth, gov. Getting desperate, Roger found a latrine cleaner, who was on death row and was given an offer he couldn't refuse. And so finally the axe swung, and the head was held aloft to the traditional words, Behold the head of a traitor. But no one cheered. And medieval people liked cheering at executions. So everyone, this seems like a handy place to stop. I shall have a weekend off next week. Then the week after we'll have our murder mystery. Da-da. Then the following week, I really think we need a bit of a catch-up about the history of Europe. Because there's been all manner of interesting things going on with popes and templars and all that sort of thing. So it'll be a few weeks before we get to the fate of Mortimer and Isabella. So, special thanks this week to Leland for your kind donation. My thanks to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group, or indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck everyone and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.